Welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast. This week, Pastor Ben Pitney continues in our new series out of the book of Matthew with a message titled, Love for Enemies, Part 2. Grab your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. At Vail Christian Church, we believe in training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. We know that um, in this series that we've been in, starting um, through the book of Matthew, part of the reason why we wanted to journey through um, this book is because it seems like there's a lot of instances where people's emotions are running high, right? And that's so true in um, our world that we're living in right now. I feel like we're on a roller coaster ride regarding our emotions. Everywhere I turn and as I'm interacting, um, I'm finding my emotions are a little ragged um, because of the kind of the inconsistencies I think that we're kind of running through. Even, um, you know, I felt like uh, baseball this week was one of those things for me where I was like, no, not baseball. But, uh, you know, it, it's, just, it's just the world that we live in. It's a struggle right now, and everybody is wrestling with a lot of things, right? And I'm certain uh, lots of it is connected to this is an election uh, year uh, cycle for um, presidential election in particular. So lots of things are going on like that. But we have started in the Gospel of Matthew, and it started with the Sermon on the Mount, because the Sermon on the Mount is full of a lot of commands. And um, I think the commands are important to take a look at because uh, for multiple reasons, right? One of the last things Jesus does just before he ascends to heaven, he he gives us this great commission. And um, part of the great commission is to not only um, lead people to Christ, all right, to make disciples, baptize them, all right, but teach them all of the commands, everything he says that I've taught you. Teach them all this stuff, all right? So that's why you've been walking through um, already the, the Sermon on the Mount. But when you extrapolate the commands, there's some things that we need to understand and know first or foundationally, right? And so last Sunday, what we wanted to do was go through, we want to find understanding and focus on verse 45 in Matthew chapter 5. Um, If you want to take your Bible out and turn to Matthew chapter 45, we're going to focus on verse 43 through 48 today. But in particular, if you go to verse 45, love your enemy so that you may be like your father in heaven, right? That's where we wanted to focus. And one of the reasons why some people um, steer away or maybe don't like um, the Sermon on the Mount and uh, chapters 5 through chapter 7 in particular is because of the conditional statements like this. If you love your enemies the way God loves his enemies, then you'll be his children, basically. And so... Um, you'll be sons of your father in heaven. People don't like those conditions. 
But the focus here is not on attaining a relationship or becoming a child of God, but rather on being the kind of person who shares the characteristics of God himself in verse 45. Right? So verse 45 does not mean that you can earn your way into God's family by loving our enemies. It means that uh, when we love our enemy, we prove ourselves to be in God's family. And if you love your enemy the way God loves his enemies, then you show that you are a child of God. You're seen to be a child of God. Loving your enemy doesn't pay for your birth into God's family. It proves you've been born into God's family and that you're like your father in heaven. So we closed up the message by asking, how did Jesus offer a relationship with himself and his father? How does it get started so that we have the power to love and can prove that God is at work within us? And the answer began in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Just by way of review, here's where it begins. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. So, in other words, we receive Jesus and, and his kingdom through bankruptcy. By admitting we're poor in spirit, we're, by admitting the poverty that's in our heart, right? The answer was in Mark chapter 10, verse 15. I tell you the truth. Jesus speaks truth. Let me tell you truth. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. And Mark 2, 17, those who are healthy don't need a physician, but those who are sick do. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So we receive Jesus and his kingdom by admitting that we're sick and that we're in need of a spiritual physician. So in other words, the commands of the Sermon on the Mount are not the first things that have to do with our relationship to Jesus and his Father. The first things are the free gospel good news promises that he will be the forgiver and the healer of all of our sickness and the sickness that's in our hearts. The Father, he'll be our Father um, to helpless children and he, and he will be the answer to our poverty-stricken heart. We receive all the promises from God by faith. Jesus said, um, in particular, to the prostitute who wept at his feet. You remember that? Luke 7, verse 48. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is how life in Christ starts. This is where it all begins. It doesn't start by getting your act together and cleaning yourself up and dusting yourself off, right? It starts by realizing that we don't, uh, that, that we can't do this, that we're not good enough, and that we fall short. We're all sinful and we need a Savior. It starts by um, recognizing that we are poverty stricken, that we're helpless children, that we have a sin sick heart and we're in need of a great physician. That's where it begins. Then we hear the gospel news that Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life a ransom for many. And we hear the free offer that by trusting him, um, our sins will be forgiven. God will be our father and the power of the kingdom will come into our lives and change us. And we'll have the help we need to live out the Sermon on the Mount and all the commands. Jesus says in John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit because apart from me, you um, can accomplish nothing. We're grafted into the vine by faith in the promises of Christ. I love this imagery, this grafting imagery. In high school, I worked for a little um, business. It's, a, it's actually a big business now called Waters Gardens. It was a garden center. And I got a job delivering flowers for Mr. Waters. And, um, and eventually then, um, uh, you know, I didn't deliver flowers all the time. Actually, I, I delivered flowers on those special days where Guys send lots of flowers, you know, like Valentine's Day and Mother's Day and all those times, right? So I delivered flowers, but then um, during all the other times, I worked in the nursery part of the garden center. And there was an older guy that was in charge of the fruit trees. And so he trained me how to do some stuff. And, you know, this was not... Seems like it was a long time ago, but now you can just go down to Home Depot and you can buy the little sapling uh, fruit trees, right? And they're produced on giant farms. But um, Mr. Waters would buy these bare root trees, plum trees in particular, and uh, you know they're 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 cut off just they're cut off just so that this much of the tree is sticking out of the ground, kind of thing, right? We would pot them, and then we would graft. We'd drill a hole in that that wild plum bare root tree. It was a wild plum tree, and then you could put then a little sapling branch of any, almost any fruit tree. You get, you you peeled off the bark and you grafted it in there, and then this guy would he he would show me how he then bend it up and he would wrap a um, cord around it or a special um, kind of line. And put it in there, and then we would just set, put these out in buckets and water them and set up this system to water them. And after a, a year or so, that it, it just became like one thing, just one tree grafted in there. The miracle of grafting is, is amazing. How almost all your fruit trees are just exactly like that. You just don't realize it because you buy it and it's already kind of grown and everything. But most fruit trees are grafted into a wild plum um, root. And this is the imagery here. We're grafted into the vine by faith in the promises of Christ. So the fruit uh, we produce, like loving our enemy, is not produced in our own strength, but by the strength of the vine. Apart from me, you can accomplish nothing. There's an amazing reason why you use a wild plum um, a root or base because it's so hardy, it's so sturdy, you can't really kill it, you know? Can't keep all the plants growing in your front yard, but the weeds seem to just do really well, right? 
Now today we want to look at who our enemies are and what it means to love them and how this is possible. So let's read together Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43 through 48. Let's read it together again. It says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, so Jesus is straightening this out, right? I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Verse 45, so that you may be like your father in heaven, since he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's a key verse. We're going to look at this a little bit further. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors, I mean, you know, those guys that are really nobody likes and hates and those guys. Even the tax collectors do the same, don't they? And if you only greet your brothers, what more do you do? Even the Gentiles, I mean, these are the people that don't go to church. Even the Gentiles do the same, don't they? So then be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So in the, the scripture right here, Jesus is responding to misinterpretation of the Old Testament commandment to love your neighbor as you love yourself. This commandment is found in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 18 and verses 34. But where we are in chapter 5 of Matthew, verses 43 and 44, you've heard it that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, Jesus says, let me tell you how it really is or should be, love your enemy, right? Neighbor is not just friends and brothers is what he's getting at, neighbor. Who's, who's this neighbor you're talking about? One of the reasons we know Jesus thought it was wrong to interpret neighbor just as a friend or as a brother or as a... Or, or, or a comrade, people you like, people that are on your team, right? Is that in Luke chapter 10, verse 29, when he, asked, when he was asked, well, who's my neighbor then? He answers by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know that story, the Good Samaritan, right? In that parable, the man who loved was a Samaritan, and the wounded man whom he loved was a Jew. Now, this is super appropriate right now, all right, because the Jews and the Samaritans were anything but friends and brothers. They had nothing to do with each other. They, were in, they had this deep religious and racial animosity towards each other. <laughs> so Jesus doesn't just say, I got two commands for you guys, two. He doesn't say that. One's uh, love your neighbor, and the other one is love your enemy. He doesn't say that at all. That's not what he gets. And I think this is one of the most profound things about this command. I have one command for you, love your neighbor, and I mean even if he is your enemy. That's what he's trying to, trying to say here. But what, is it, what does he mean by enemy? That's what everybody wants to know, right? Well, who are the enemy? And you got to put on your balanced um, heart just a little bit here, right? Because one of the first, you know, my mind starts going crazy when he's like, all right, who, who's the enemy? Because one of the first, now maybe, maybe you're not like me, but this is the way I start going, well, what about all these people 
that I don't, I don't think they're qualified to decide who the enemy is. Right? <laughs> stop thinking about like, stop thinking like that. Let's look at what kind of stuff does, does, does Jesus have in mind that creates this um, person called enemy, right? And from the context, what we can see that he means is a wide range of feelings from very severe opposition to minor snubbing. So it's pretty broad. It's pretty huge. And I want you to notice some things. And as we do, I want you, this is what you should do. Instead of thinking about everybody else and who's qualified to decide whose enemy is, who the enemy is, I want you to think and I want you to ask, who in your experience comes closest, all right, to, to what he's describing here? And I want you to be praying that God will use his word even now to give you the heart to love them. So just think about yourself for a few minutes, okay? Nobody else. Nobody else. So let's talk about the second point, those who persecute you first. The meaning of enemy is found in verse 44. Look at verse 44, and remember, I'm going to put it up here, but, but, but look in your own Bible, make some notes there. Verse 44 says, but I say to you, love your enemy and Pray for those who persecute you. Here's where the answer is. So clearly by enemy, he means people who oppose you and try to hurt you. All right? Persecute in particular means to pursue with harmful intentions. It might include very severe hostility like the hostility Jesus actually faced. For example, just a few days ago, just a few days ago, I read an article where Christians are still being crucified, literally, crucified literally, an organization called Open Door World Watch. They create a list. They've reported that five Christians have been crucified since July in Sudan, one being an Anglican priest. Five. Crucified. Now, when I say crucified, I mean literally using nails, putting them on a cross. Can you believe that still happens in our world? This is just a map of the top, I think there's nine, the top nine countries in the globe that are still persecuting Christians. Here they are. This is where they're located. All right. In just last year, there have been 2,983 Christians killed for their faith and, or related reasons in the top 50 World Watch list countries. 3,711 Christians were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, and imprisoned in the top 50 World Watch list countries. 9,488 churches uh, or Christians or, uh, and their buildings attacked in the top 50 World Watch list countries. 11 countries scoring in the extreme level for their persecution of Christians. Six years ago, North Korea was the only one in the extreme level of persecuting Christians. Six years ago. But now... 19 consecutive years, North Korea has ranked number one as the world's most dangerous place for Christians, but they're 
but there's more than North Korea by a long shot. By a long shot. Put that next picture up where you can see the extremes and the severes. Yeah, right there. Look at in orange, extreme persecution. Then in kind of a caramel color, very high persecution. And then high persecution. I mean, it's all persecution. Look how many countries in on our globe are still persecuting Christ followers. I just read uh, something recently. Henan, a province of China, is encouraging citizens to report on religious activities. It just came out just a few days ago. I read this on, on, on the 23rd. There's a notice sent out by the Xinjiang City Gushi County Ethnic and Religious Affairs Bureau. And what, they, what, they, what, what the article says is that they, they noted that from August 20th to September 20th, this particular county and this bureau is going to conduct a month-long investigation to crack down on religious activities. All right, the, because there's a lot of Christians in this particular county in China, all right, in the province of um, Henan, all right. So this is what happens. The bureau is going to provide; uh, they're providing a hotline for people to report and submit rel- relevant videos or recordings or pictures. And they can submit these ter- materials to the local ethnic and religious affairs bureaus or sub-district offices. You can send it to almost any government agency, basically. And they will give you a reward uh, to the equivalent of $75. And your identity will be protected, they promise. Now, that sounds, that sounds nuts, doesn't it? That sounds crazy. Jesus is saying, love those people. Love them. Love them. If, you, if they kill you, love them. If they take away your father, love them. If they destroy your home, love them. Love your enemies. Be the kind of person. Be so transformed on the inside that it's really possible. There's a lot of persecution going on. Maybe it's going to show up here someday. Let's talk about this, though. This is maybe more relevant. You know, this is, uh, th- this is happening. I, mean, I just told you thousands of Christ followers and churches all over the globe are experiencing severe persecution. It, it, it's there. It's happening. But let's talk about some of the less emotional things, right? That's my third point. He also has in mind, Jesus has in mind, situations much less emotional. Verse 45, the second half of verse 45 gives another indication of the kind of Hard relationships in which we should love. Because this is all, actually all about relationships generally, right? So um, Matthew 5.45, the second part of the verse says, He, or God, causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, the evil and the good are people who defy the laws of God. They resist his will. They do not submit to his authority. And uh, a lot of these people do not admit that they are God's enemies. I mean, actually, who wants to admit that you're an enemy of God, right? 
In fact, uh, you, you know, I mean, realistically, they would resent being told that, they are an enemy, that they're God's enemies. But Jesus mentions them to illustrate God, God's love for enemies and our love for our enemy, right? So another way to understand enemies in this passage is that they are people who are repeatedly acting against what you want. Now, you know, bring some balance because you can be a big baby and say you want something and that's ridiculous, right? They may not call themselves enemies. You may not call themselves an call them an enemy, but they resist what you want. They are contrary and antagonistic. In this sense, in, in, in this sense, an enemy by, might be a rebellious child. Okay. You might, an enemy might be an uncaring, a non-listening husband or wife, or a bad-tempered husband or wife. An enemy might be a, can, uh, a cantankerous neighbor that complains about everything you do or don't do to your yard. Or that HOA that just sends around the you know, the weed police or the garbage can police or the, I don't know, there's a whole subcommittee of those people, right? God bless them. Jesus says, love them, love your enemy. You see what I'm saying right here? See what he's saying? Let's go to the next point, number four. Anyone who doesn't love you or is not your brother. You just take this a little bit further in verse 46 and 47. Look at verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do the same, don't they? It makes me feel bad for the tax collector. He gets thrown under the bus all the time. But these people were pretty bad in the day and cheating and all that. And everybody hated them like crazy, right? And he says, and if you only greet your brothers, what do you do? I mean, even the Gentiles. I mean, it's like saying, you know, even the people that don't go to church. They do the same, don't they? I mean, these people, they're not, right? So in verse 46, the enemy is anyone who doesn't love you. If you just love those who love you, you're not loving the way I just commanded you, Jesus is saying. And in verse 47, the enemy is anyone who's not your brother, not on your team. If you greet your brothers only, you're, you're, you're not loving the way I just commanded you, see? So the point seems to be don't stop loving because the person uh, does things that offend you and we're easily offended, or dishonor you, or hurt your feelings, or anger you, or disappoint you, or frustrate you, or threaten you, or even kill you. See the wide range of experiences and emotional things, right? Love your enemies means keep on loving them, all of them. So let's talk about what this love is. Number one, something as simple as greeting them. So in verse 47... Again, loving your enemy means something as simple as a gracious, uh, as gracious and um, a gracious greeting. 
If you greet your brothers only, what do you, what do, you do more than others, right? It's easy to just greet and, and, and express, you know, love to people that you, that love you, <laughs> right? Greeting your non-brothers is one form of the love Jesus has in mind here. Your non-brothers, your non-people who are not necessarily on your team, or they just don't even know you, Right? That may seem really insignificant in the context of threatening and killing, but Jesus means for this text to apply to all of life, all of life. Whom do you greet when you leave the service? Who who are you going to greet? Who are you going to connect with? Who are you going to say goodbye to? Who are you going to wave to or give the thumbs up or whatever, right? Or the... How's it going? Or, you know, see you later. Only, only close friends? Only, you know? Only those you know? Only those people you know? Jesus says, greet not only those who you don't know, greet those who are at odds with you. Now you're going to have to be careful now, right? Because if there's people that you never say anything to, and then after service you go saying something to them, they're going to be like, oh, man. I think they'll understand. But it's going to be weird. Of course, there may be some more that you should do if there's tension between you. But you have... No warrant or no reason from Jesus to snub somebody. None. Come on. Love your enemy means something as simple as greeting people. Number two, practically meeting their physical needs. And I like this. I really like this. Look at verse 45 because it it illustrates what love is. Verse 45, he or God, that's my, I have that little commentary in there. That's who it's talking about. Think of this what God can do. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So in this case, love is very practical effort to meet a person's physical needs. Sunshine and rain are two things that, um, that things, that stuff need to grow so that there will be food for human life. And that's what God does. So this is the kind of thing Paul had in mind when he quoted Proverbs 25.2 or 25.21 in Romans 12.20. Look at Romans 12.20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you'll be heaping burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So loving your enemy means practical acts of helpfulness in the ordinary things of life. God gives his enemies sunshine and rain. You give your enemies food and water. How about praying for enemies? Oh, this is really good. Let me, let me just give you three prayer kind of quotes. You can quote me. You can use these, all right? First, before we talk about praying for our enemies. Prayer, just a little bit. Number one, prayer is powerless on its own. But it gives you access to Jesus, who is the power of God. That's pretty profound. Think about that. Prayer's powerless on its own. It's just doing something, right? But it gives you access to Jesus. That's where all the power is. 
How about this? Prayer is your um, first line of offense against the enemy, not your last line of defense. Prayer is a powerful military offensive weapon. And then prayer is not about your ability to make things happen, but your willingness to trust God to make things happen. Now, in light of this, now, look at verse 44, because it gives us one of the deepest meanings of love for your enemies. Here it is. One of the deepest reasons or, or meanings of love. Verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Prayer for your enemies. I mean, th- this is this is real love right here because it means that you have uh, you have to really want something good to happen to them. Now think about that for a minute, because you might do nice things for your enemy without genuinely desire that things go well with them. You realize you can do that, right? But prayer for them is the presence of God, in the presence of God who knows your heart, all right? And prayer is communicating with God on their behalf, right? So it may be for their conversion. You see, when you're praying for your enemy, you're, you're, you're asking for, for something good to happen in their life. Otherwise, there's almost no reason to pray for them, right? So you may be praying for, their, for them to come to know Jesus or for them to repent of Sin, or maybe that they would become aware of the venom and the acidity in their heart. And maybe they're in a downward spiral of some kind of sin and, and you know, stuff in their life. And your, your prayer is, is that it would stop. But the prayer Jesus has in mind here is always for their good. You can do things, but it's not always deeply for people's good. Think of this, because this is what Jesus did when he hung on the cross. It's one of the most profound examples you can find. Luke 23, 34, think of this. Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Unbelievable. And it's what Stephen did when he was being stoned. And by the way, when Stephen, this uh, first century um, New Testament deacon, you know, he was being stoned for just preaching the gospel. They weren't using like rocks, one-fisted rocks. They were using big old rocks, like two hands kind of rocks to kill him. He's being stoned in Acts seven sixty. It says, then he fell, in, uh, fell to his knees and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. These are examples of obedience to Jesus' command. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is calling us not just to do good things for our enemies. Do good things for your enemies. He's he's asking us to do those things. But that's not um, all of it, right? Like greeting them and helping them with their needs. No. He's also calling us to want Their, their best, and to express those wants and prayers. Our hearts should want people's salvation, want their presence in heaven, want real transformation for them. That's what he's saying. See, it gets really thick, doesn't it? So 
what does this have to do with me? Let's just make it real practical as we can. What does this have to do with me and you now? Regarding these commands, regarding uh, what we're supposed to do and commands, we're supposed to obey these things. We're supposed to know these things. We've got the foundation set. What does this have to do with me? Here it is. Number one, power to love like this comes from the Lord. That's only where you're going to get it. And there's an end to it when it's just me. And um, my goodness, I don't, it's, it's just, um, apart from Jesus, I really can't do anything. So just think of, though, now, if all this power comes from the Lord, think of our mission and our purpose and our mandate, right? Think of how astonishing this is when this kind of love appears through you and in you when you leave here, you go across that bridge, you get in your car, and you, get, you begin to interact in the, the, the world. Because we're only here for a few hours on Sunday. Your life is lived out in all kinds of ways in the community that we live in. Think, just think of how astonishing this is when this kind of love appears in the world through you. When you leave from here, it's astonishing, you see. It's powerful when it appears like that because it's not, it's not the way the world actually loves, right? It's, it's such a contrast. It's so different. It's actually what people want. I mean, have you ever experienced someone loving you this way? I mean, you just fully know you don't really deserve it. Number two, could anything show the truth and the power and reality of Jesus more than loving like this? See, I don't think so. It's profound. It's profound. Look back with me to Matthew chapter 5, just two verses, verses 11 and 12. It's still in the same sermon. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things about you falsely on account of me, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven. For they persecuted the prophets before you in, this, in the same way. What does this have to do with me? See, number three is Jesus says that not only can you endure the mistreatment of the enemy, but you can also rejoice in it because your reward is great in heaven. Which means that the command to love your enemy is a command to set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. We get all too focused on the things on earth. I mean, man, so quickly, so distracted because we're such emotional people. Number four, the command to love your enemy is a command to find your hope, not cross your fingers kind of hope, truth. Find truth and satisfaction in the Lord and his reward, not in the way people treat you. If you're living, um, the only way you can be satisfied is based on the way people treat you. Oh, you know, in particular for me, I know people talk about my message every Sunday at lunch, and I can, I can, you know, I can feel insecure about that after a while, and all kinds of things, all kinds of decisions that I make. How about you? Where, where does it rest for you? But how people treat you, how they react with you, how they, you know, 
man, when I go play golf, I rarely tell anybody. I love playing golf with people I don't know, and I try to go as long as I can to avoid the, hey, what do you do? Because as soon as I say, well, I'm a pastor of a church, then, oh, my gosh, then there's all kinds of apologies for the language that they've been using. And then um, amazingly, there's a boatload of churches that they attend, and they begin to tell me all about it, right? And I'm like, oh, man, it's all it's crazy, right? Number five, and the last one, loving your enemy doesn't earn you the reward of heaven. Can't think like that. Valuing or treasuring the reward of heaven empowers you to love your enemy. And it's pretty broad who the enemy is now, right? It's, it's, there's not one command, or there's not two commands. There's one command for loving people. Pray with me. Thank you, Lord. We need to live like this. The times that we're living in, Lord, really demand it. So teach us to be a church. Teach us to be Christ followers that live in such a way that people are astonished and, and attracted and want what we have. In particular, Lord, those who oppose us, whether they oppose us harshly or just offend us and think different than we think. Teach us to love the way you love. No ifs, ands, or buts. Unconditional God kind of love. That's who you're commanding us to be and what you're commanding us to do. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Vail Christian Church Podcast. Join us again next week as we continue in the book of Matthew. If you have any questions, would like more information about our church, or would like to see the video cast of this message, please visit our website at www.vailchristian.com.